many of you, by a show of hands in the room, are familiar, or you have maybe heard the name somewhere in the dark recesses of your memory, you've heard the name Marcelo Garcia. Let me just see a show of hands. If you've ever heard of Marcelo Garcia, okay, we have a few, that's about four in the whole room. Marcelo Garcia is a really fascinating cat. Marcelo Garcia is by almost unanimous consent, the single greatest pound-for-pound practitioner in the world of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He is, by almost all accounts, the best in the entire world at Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Now, I, I'm not a big jiu-jitsu guy. I know that's hard to believe looking at me, but that's, that's not really my, my you know, wheelhouse. But I was recently in New York City with Ben Young, and we were there for a meeting that we had. And while we were there, Ben, who is very into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, or as they say in the trade, BJJ, he said, Mac, he goes, man, I would love to go to Marcelo Garcia's dojo, his gym that he has in New York City. Just, I'd like to just watch them roll and do their thing. I think we have a picture, actually, that I took of Ben and Marcelo Garcia. That, that right there, Ben, ben is a real laid-back, even-keeled. He's passionate, but he very, this is Ben doing cartwheels down the street. He is so excited to be with Marcelo Garcia. Now, Ben goes about six foot, six one. He's not like really tall. You can see Marcelo's few, probably about 5'9", something like that. Be not mistaken. He is the humblest, most gracious guy. He just You meet him, he's like, oh, thank you for coming in. I really appreciate it. It's nice to meet you. And he's awesome to Ben and to me, too. He's so gracious. But make no mistake about it, he could kill you. I mean, he is, he is one of these people. He's just, it's unbelievable. And so... I thought I could talk about it, but I'd love to just show you about a 60-second about a clip of what Marcelo Garcia does in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Check this out. Tapping out. That's what that that's where that comes from. Did anybody else think about when you were watching that video? Did you think about the great philosopher Ricky Bobby? I mean, Marcelo comes at you like a spider monkey, man. I mean, he he just put a whooping on you without even thinking about it. It's unbelievable. Incredible. And I thought that is the perfect wrap-up to the trust protocol that we've been in for the last few weeks as a church. Because trust really is, in a very, very real way, relational, maybe even professional, and personal jiu-jitsu. Now, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is an interesting 
martial art. It was descended from a lot of the Asian martial arts, but in Brazil in the early 20th century, there, there was a family, the Gracie family, developed Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is based upon the premise that a smaller opponent can subdue a larger, more powerful, stronger opponent by using that opponent's weight and speed and quickness as leverage against him or her. And so you don't have to be necessarily really big to be really, really good at jiu-jitsu. In the same way, as we've talked about trust over the last few weeks as a church, I know I know that some of you have been thinking to yourselves, if not saying out loud on your way to lunch afterwards, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. I understand this whole trust thing. You're the preacher. It's in the Bible. It's good to talk about. Let's tell the truth. But I live in the real world, Jack. So what some of you have been thinking. You're thinking, man, I, I live in a dog-eat-dog, alpha-predator environment, shark-infested waters. If I walk around trusting everybody and saying, hey, let's be trustful, then I'm going to get eaten for lunch. And, and I get it. I know that those environments exist. I know that the world can be a hard, hard place sometimes. But I also know that this is the truth. This is reality. That trust that can be perceived as a weakness, it can be perceived as maybe a disadvantage, can instead be leveraged to be the greatest opportunity and the greatest advantage professionally and personally. That, that trust can be leveraged to really and truly jujitsu, personal, pride, ego, self, fraud, deceit, and all of those things that make this world such a hard place to be a follower of Christ sometimes. And so this morning, as we wrap up this series, I want to I just bring it home. I want to just kind of remind you where we've been, but more than anything, I want to just leave you with one thought, and that is this, that the trust protocol works every time. I want you to tell your neighbor with passion and enthusiasm, it works every time. It works every single time that it's put into practice, every time that it's adopted. Now, as we talked about last week, the fact of the matter is that not everybody chooses to be a person of trust, that betrayal can be a very, very real and present danger in this world. But when people come together, whether it's in a home or in a dating relationship, or when they come together on a team or in school or, or maybe as husband and wife, or as a church, or in a business, when people practice the protocol, it works every single time. Now, you'll remember that the trust protocol is anchored by Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Hebrews 10, 24 is one of those pillar verses for us as a church family. It says very, very straightforwardly, it says, let us consider... Let, let's strategize. Let's, let's deliberately decide how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. How we can be people of love and trust and community and good deeds and work and activity and accountability. Because the fact of the matter is there's no community without accountability. 
But there's no accountability without real community. There's no accountability in our lives if we don't trust somebody to hold us accountable. We've got to be willing to embrace that iron sharpening iron, that friction, that heat, and that hammer in order to be everything that God's created us to be. And so he's given us this tool of trust. He's given us the trust protocol in his word, the Bible, in order to use to be better and to do better in this world. And I think that's something that's really, really important for us to remember. Because you and I are living in a world that is literally dying, dying for people to be trustworthy. We're living in a world that is desperately crying out for teachers and coaches, for celebrities. We, we live in a world that so desperately needs leaders and, and, and somewhere, at some point, a statesman or a stateswoman to rise up and to lead in our nation for the right reasons in the right way. We need this. And the trust protocol is the great opportunity that's in front of us. It's something that every single one of us can participate in, can perpetuate and make a difference right where we live and maybe even beyond. Maybe even to see that ripple out into the world and make a difference in this world. Sandhurst is Great Britain's version of West Point. It is the academy where every single British army officer goes to learn leadership in a military setting. And Sandhurst, every single officer candidate, when they get there, they get a copy of this book, Serve to Lead. That also happens to be the Sandhurst motto. It's not a long book, right at about 110 pages or so, but every single British officer reads this book. And it's interesting to me, I think, how the book begins to teach leadership, to teach credibility to those who would lead in a military setting. This is what it says in the very first chapter. It says, morale is a state of mind. It is that intangible force which will move a whole group of men or people to give their last ounce to achieve something without counting the cost to themselves that makes them feel they are a part of something greater than themselves. Morale. Morale is that it's that sense of credibility, that, that esprit de corps that a military unit has to have before they wade into battle. But I think the same thing is true for every single group that you, are not, you and I are a part of. Think about this. What's the morale in your home? Do, do your kids look forward to getting off the bus and coming in the door? How about this? Does your wife look forward to being in your home? I'm not talking about the morality. I'm talking about the morale of your home. What's the morale of your home? Does your husband enjoy walking in the door? Does he feel celebrated and honored? What's the morale? It's funny, in the first service, we had a woman down here, over here to my left and your right. She went, woo, woo, when they said, does your husband feel excited to come home? I felt like we needed to kind of shut the service down so they could, you know, get home. But anyway, <laughs> apparently this service, we got some morale issues. Anyway, but think about it. What's the morale in your office? 
What's the morale on your teams at school, classrooms? Because you and I decide what the morale is going to be, particularly when we have the responsibility of leadership placed in our hands. We decide, and I would suggest to you that trust is the single greatest determinant of morale that there is. You, you've got to trust each other in order for there to be a healthy morale. And in order for it to be an environment that you want to be a part of, you've got to know, hey, we're all on the same team. We don't always agree necessarily, but when we disagree, we disagree agreeably. You know what I'm saying? And, and so that morale thing, I think, really transcends military. I think it goes to every single part of life. Trust. Trust. Who, who are the people in your life that you trust the most? That's an interesting question to just kind of start listing those people. But I think an even more interesting question, who are the people in your life that trust you? Who are the people in your life that they know your yes means yes and your no means no? Now, that doesn't mean that you don't mess up from time to time. It doesn't mean that you don't that you never fail to carry through on a commitment, but it means that over the course of your life, over the course of my life, there are people around us, and they say, you can say whatever you want to about him, but when he says it, he means it. His walk matches his talk. That's what we're talking about in this idea of trust and, and credibility and, and making a difference in the world. For those of you who think this may be kind of Pie in, the eye, just, pie in the sky, just church stuff. I direct you to Warren Buffett. I think we would all agree that Warren Buffett is a fairly real world guy. The, the Oracle of Omaha. This guy's a squillionaire. And Warren Buffett speaks specifically to the issue of trust. This is what he writes. In looking for people to hire, you look for three qualities. Integrity, intelligence, and energy. And if they don't have the first, the other two will kill you. I want you to think about that for a second. If you think about people you want to hire, maybe you want to hire that person as a boyfriend. Hire that person and sign them up to be a spouse for life. They've got to have integrity They've got to have intelligence and they've got to have energy. But if they don't have integrity, their intelligence and their energy will absolutely eat your lunch. This integrity thing really, really matters. And as I said just a second ago, the fact is it works everywhere it's put into practice. Think about, it, think about a home. If your kids trust you, you are three-fourths of the way to winning at parenting. But if they don't trust you, if they, they wonder about your motives or my motives, then it really doesn't matter how many Bible verses we make them memorize around the kitchen table for devotions. It doesn't matter how many times we shuffle them out the door to go to church. If they don't trust mom and dad, we are dead in the water as parents. We've got to be trustworthy as parents Students, by the same token, you have to be trustworthy where you live day in and day out. You've got to be people that your mom and dad know they can count on your yes being yes and your no being no. And 
they never, this is my favorite, is when, when people have to ask the exact right question to get the right answer. Because the fact of the matter is we, we know how to parse our words, don't we? We know how to say things that aren't technically lying. Have you ever said that? Anybody, just, just, this is church. We're not going to answer, nobody ever point this out again once you leave this room. Have you ever said that like, I didn't technically lie? I've done it. I'm not proud of it. Not my great. But if, if you ever say I didn't technically lie, you lied. I'm, I'm just telling you. Like, if you misunderstood me, that's my favorite. If you, because what, you know, Julie and I learned early on, Emily and Joseph, man, they, they are skilled wordsmiths. Our kids, man. We, I remember when Emily was very little, Julie said, she will either be or need a great defense attorney at some point in her life. That's how good she is with words. When she was little, three years old, I would you know, say, Emily, you can't do that. And she'd be like, Daddy, you need to understand why I did that. And, and, and I'd be like, okay, that's a good point. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no. You were, you know, it's crazy. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because again, this works every single time. Why? Do you ever ask why? That's, that's, kind of, that's kind of a bold claim to say that this love and good deeds thing that God created, that God has called us into, to say that it works all the time? Well, it's because of the character and nature of God. You see, creation, you and me and, and the world, carries with it divine DNA. You, you and I, in particular, we were created as human beings to bear the image of God. God created male and female in his image. He created them. He created us in the image of God. No other part of creation carries with it that distinction. Now, all of creation carries divine DNA, but it is only humanity, men and women, who were created to bear the image of God. And so when we accurately and appropriately represent God, everything works better. When we step away from that, when we, when we kind of keep God at arm's length and decide to do our own thing that runs counter to what he has shown us biblically, that's when things get messed up. That's when, that's when things break down. And so it's important for us to understand this, this character of God if you've got your Bibles, I want you to look in the book of John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, the Bible says something truly, truly remarkable about the character and the nature of Jesus. In John chapter 1, the Bible is describing Jesus who has come to earth. John, the fourth book of the New Testament, chapter 1 is the very beginning of it. This is what it says in verse 14. It says, the Word, who is Jesus, he is the embodiment of everything that's in the scripture, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That, that's, that's the beginning, that's Christmas. He, he was born as one of us. He became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. 
grace and forgiveness and redemption and restoration and healing, the grace of God and the truth of God, the, the law of God, the justice of God, the judgment of God, all of it perfectly coming together in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, when you understand full of grace and truth, you just have to understand that this is a part of the character and the nature of Jesus that we can't fully comprehend. I, I can understand grace. Man, I, I love amazing grace, forgiveness. Give me some of that. But then there's this truth part over here, and I understand that, and, and there's the Ten Commandments and the law and the fact that God is the ultimate judge and he will judge the quick and the dead and everyone will come before the judgment seat of Christ. That's, that's reality. But, but how, do you, how do you reconcile this grace thing over here with this truth thing over here? Jesus, that's how. Jesus doesn't just reconcile those two things. He reveals them perfectly. And there, there's a moment in the life of Jesus that's recorded for us in the Bible, you know, if you, if you study the life of Jesus, he had, a, he had an amazing earthly ministry that lasted about three years. And early in his ministry, he was remarkably popular. People flocked from the countryside. They were like, man, this dude's healing. His preaching is great. It's not boring. We, we ought to go see them. And, Whoa, Jesus, this is awesome. Towards the end, that kind of died away a little bit. But early on, he was remarkably popular. But throughout his ministry, he had this ongoing debate, this ongoing kind of spiritual feud with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were kind of the religious intelligentsia of his day. They were the self-appointed watchdogs who made sure that everybody made, did everything right, and they were going to make sure that if they didn't, everybody else knew about it, and that was their job. And one day, Jesus was teaching, and the Pharisees showed up, and in, in, in the Bible says just in kind of a little, you know, little hubbub, they, they just dumped this woman at Jesus' feet. And, and the Bible says that the woman that they dumped at Jesus' feet had just been caught in the act of adultery. And, and so there's this, this incredible moment where, where Jesus is teaching. He's interrupted by the Pharisees, and the Pharisees think they've got him. Like, we are taking down the Jesus guy. Here we go. And they said, Rabbi, with this kind of false piousness and false respect, they said, oh, Rabbi, you teach about grace and forgiveness, but the law of Moses says anyone caught in the act of adultery must be stoned to death. What say you? <laughs> and I think even now, 2,000 years later, you can, you can feel the tension in that moment. And what I think is so fascinating is how Jesus never, ever lashed out at the Pharisees. He always had an answer for them, but he never lashed out at the Pharisees. And the Bible says that he just kind of knelt down in the dirt. He just knelt down and started kind of doodling in the dirt with his finger. And we, we don't know what he was writing. He you know, might have been plays for football. You know, you go deep and cut out and you run a post. Well, we don't know. But he stood up and he said to the Pharisees, you're right. 
That's what the law of Moses commands. Go ahead. And so for the Pharisees, this was a win-win. They had caught Jesus in this conundrum. Either he was going to continue to endorse grace and refute the law of Moses, and then they could, they could brand him a heretic, or he would endorse Moses and refute grace, and they could say his message is a farce. Plus, they were excited they were going to get to stone somebody. Pharisees love to stone people. They love to point out other people's mistakes. They, they'd go on Pharisee Facebook and go, can you believe it? I mean, that, this is what they did. Jesus said, you're right, that's what the law of Moses says. Have at it. But I tell you what, just, just real quick. Whoever among you has no sin in his life, you get to throw the first stone. I kind of think it was that quiet. I kind of think. We don't know. But you, you can just hear the grinding of Pharisee teeth. Like, mm, we had him. I thought we had him. And then the Bible says one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they left the rocks and the dust and they left. Now, if you and I were writing the story, man, be like, whoo the, the music would swell, the credits would roll. That, that's an incredible moment. But look at what Jesus did. See, it wasn't, for Jesus, it wasn't just the crowd. It was the one. It was the one. The one who had been brought to him in shame. The one who had been used to make a point, and, and Jesus is just standing there. And he asks her a simple question. He says, woman, which you, you have to understand in, in the context of the original language in Aramaic, that was, a, that was a term of affection. That was a term of respect. Do you understand what Jesus does? He looks a woman in the eye, caught in the act of adultery, and he elevates her. He says, I honor you as, as a woman created in the image of God. Woman, where are your accusers? Now, we don't know, but I, I kind of think at this point, she's having trouble looking Jesus in the eye. I don't know that. And she says, they're not here. And then Jesus says, no man condemns you, and neither do I. I don't know what you walked in here with this morning. I don't know what you thought about Jesus or about his people, us. But whatever it is, just understand, Jesus doesn't condemn you. And neither do we. Because the fact of the matter is we've all been in that woman's sandals. We've all been ashamed. We've all been guilty. 
And Jesus says, no man condemns you, and neither do I. You see, he was full of grace, full of grace. But remember, he, he was also full of truth. He says, no man condemns you, and neither do I. But then he also said to her, now, go and sin no more. You're worth more than that. You, you were created for more than that. No man condemns you, and neither do I. Full of grace, go and sin no more. Full of truth. This same Jesus will judge every single one of us. All of us. That, that's, that's the truth. That's the reality. But in him, we have the perfect combination of grace and truth. And so in Christ, we are forgiven from everything that the truth says we're guilty of. The truth sets us free in Christ. It's not just because of the truth. It's because of him. It's because of Jesus. And he sets us free. It's who he is. And it's what he does. And this is our gospel. And it's just good. It's just good. Will you bow your heads with me for just a moment? If you're here today and you've never stepped into the grace and truth of Jesus, then as a church, we get to extend that invitation to you. We get to deliver the invitation of God himself. This is an invitation that requires an RSVP. It requires that you respond to the amazing grace of God. If you're here today and you've never accepted that grace personally, received it, and begun to live in it, why not right now, just right where you are, pray. Just right now, just silently talk to God. Just say, Jesus, I need your grace and I need your truth. And I give myself over to all of both. I will follow you from this moment forward. I confess my sin to you. And I claim your forgiveness. And I will follow you from this moment forward. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just to remain with your head bowed for another moment. Because it's a sacred moment. That's why we bow our heads. But if that was your prayer, if you just stepped into that relationship and definitively and personally accepted the grace and truth of God in Jesus, this is the biggest moment of your life. And you're surrounded by people who want to help. We want to come alongside and, and help in whatever way works for you and whatever pace you prefer. And so we want to ask you if you would just do two small things before you leave. Number one, open up the program that you got when you came in today. 
just right now, just open that up right where you're sitting and fill out the connect card. And you'll notice about halfway down on that card, there's a place to indicate that I, I committed my life to Christ this week. Once you fill that out, just along the fold of the program, just tear it off at the perforation. And before you leave, hand that card to one of our ushers. If you want to, there'll be folks outside underneath the, the large lobby exit. And they're in a, under a blue canopy there. You can just hand it to one of them. That's so we can help. We want to serve you in any way that we can. But second of all, I want to invite you, if you would, just quietly, as our heads are bowed for another moment, just raise your hand. Just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for a moment. And by raising your hand, what you're saying is, this was my moment. It was real and it happened and it is a once and for all moment. You never have to pray that prayer again. You just get to begin now living the life you were created for. And so as a church, man, we, we honor that. We celebrate that. As you put your hands down, we put our hands together just to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home and welcome to the family.